1: Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Our life is not good. We plant our produce but we don't have
3: market. you don't have market for your crops, there is no point of growing made for example hundred bags of cowpeas. Where are you going to sell them? It's
4: eBay for farmers but adapted to the very specific needs of rural small scale farmers and the traders who want to buy from them.
2: Mom increase my income because I'm managed to sell more now than
3: before. <laughs> Having as much for me is a good thing I tell you. <laughs> I don't know how good it is. <laughs>
5: This is the Global Goalscast, the podcast that
6: asks if we can change the world. This episode, we look at the revolutionary power of food. But first, a shout out to our sponsors. We cannot make the Global Goalscast without you.
7: Our thanks to CBS News Digital, and to Harman, the official sound of Global Goalscast. And later in this episode, with the support of Undeniably Dairy, we will hear stories from the people who put real, fresh dairy foods on your plate.
5: Welcome back. I'm Claudia Romo-Edelman. And I'm Edie Lush. Claudia, would you believe that thanks to the Global Cast, I am now in a WhatsApp group with some Zambian farmers. Anyone who's listening, you can check them out in our Twitter and Instagram feeds. Knock yourself out. Exactly. Mainer and Golden and Charity are all there. They are a big part of our conversation today about food, which is, of course, one of my favorite topics in the entire world. There is a ton of new thinking about food and how the growing and marketing of food can be harnessed for other economic goals. Famine and malnutrition remain a challenge in some places.
6: But the closer we get to wiping out famine, the more the business of food
5: is being used to achieve other goals. So we want to tell you some stories. These are stories that illustrate a revolution in how food and food supply can spur economic development, educate young people, strengthen communities, and include everyone in the disruptive benefits of new technology.
6: Sounds like a perfect fit to our mission of showing that we are all humanity. Look, by bringing in those Zambian farmers, including several women, we help to broaden the voices that you hear in the media. We have to have more diversity of voices because the world is diverse. And not only that, but also it brings the idea that you will hear in this episode is about inclusion, about bringing the folks at the end of the road, because by bringing us all up, the playing field for humanity as a whole goes up as well. So why don't we start in Zambia and your conversations about how a mobile app has turned subsistence farmers into e-commerce agricultural
5: entrepreneurs. First of all, I have to introduce you to Evan, who actually now lives in Ireland, and he invented the coolest
4: app. Hi, my name is Evan Joyce, and I worked for WFP as a program officer. I designed and managed a project called MANO, Virtual Farmers Market.
5: Tell me about that. What gave you the idea for it?
4: I got a job with the World Food Program in Zambia in 2015. One of the biggest challenges they're facing farmers, smallholder, rural farmers, really small scale people right at the end of the road, if you like, the last mile, small scale farmers.
5: I called Evan up a second time because I realized, listening back to our first interview, that I'd actually never asked him what he meant by a last mile farmer.
4: A last mile farmer in Zambia with somebody who is more than 20 kilometers from a tarmac road, definitely doesn't have any automated transport, uses a plow the same way as plows would have been used hundreds of years ago, drawn by two oxen has no idea what the price in the market is either when it's time to buy seeds or inputs or when it's time to sell their crop because they have no automated transport. They have to rely on the one band old lorry that's owned by some businessman in the closest town to bounce down their, their dusty, muddy road to them at harvest time and offer them a low ball price. To buy their crops which they'll have to accept because they have no other option.
5: Maynard and Golden are just these kind of last mile farmers. Golden told me that the World Food Programme would come to buy his cow peas for their school feeding program. So that's one buyer for one crop. Maynard told me about growing enough to feed her family and sometimes having a little leftover to sell to one of those bandaxed old lorries, which actually kind of sounds like my high school car. So anyway, they're at the mercy of someone else who has a truck and the knowledge of what their crops are going to bring in. And to use language I learned in Econ 101, they suffer from information asymmetry. That's when one group knows more than another. That was just part of the challenge these Zambian farmers confronted, as Maynard explained to me. I'm going to let her introduce herself.
2: Okay, I'm Chabota. I'm 42 years. I'm married with four children. Three girls, one son.
5: Miner is a survivor and just like you and me, Claudia, as a mother, she has a ferocious drive to look after her kids. She lives in a two-bedroom house, has an outside kitchen. Her house sits at the end of a dirt road 15 kilometers from the nearest town. To feed her family when times were tough, she traveled a 1,000 kilometers to the border with Congo to sell goods. And can you tell me what it was like before you had
2: Mano? Our life is not good We plant our produce, but we don't have market. We were selling only using buckets, and we travel from here up to town to sell our produce.
5: And how much would you sell, for example, when you went to town before Mano?
2: Maybe five bucks, 250 cages, because of transport. It was very expensive for my community to take the produce to town.
5: Maynard has now become friends with one of the traders she met on the app, a young woman called Charity Malengu. They're 224 kilometers apart, but the app lets them do business more easily and more cheaply.
8: I'm 32 years old. I was married. My husband died on a accident. I have two children, I work in your new Soweto market selling spices and legumes with my mother. With Mano we are buying direct from the farmer, it's better in the way that I can communicate direct with the farmer, we agree on the things which I want, for example, if I want five bags of cow peas, I will communicate with the farmer, then the farmer will advertise those five bags of cow peas. Then I send the money to WFP. WFP send the money to the farmers. Then the farmer can send those five bucks to me. With Mano, trading is better because I don't waste much of my time to go to the farms and meet the farmers. So that's
5: the power of Mano, which means intelligence in the local language Tonga. Mano enabled buyers and sellers to communicate with each other and make deals. Now I want to tell you how Mano got started. To do that, let's hear again from Evan Joyce, one of the creators of the app for the World Food Programme.
4: So it was to start by getting 15 farmers that I knew from other projects working with the World Food Programme in Zambia. And bringing 15... Farmers from the and five traders from different market towns in Zambia together for one week in a classroom in the middle of nowhere in an old Ministry of Agricultural training school. We had had conversations that involved the traders going to one corner of the room and writing on a flip chart all of the reasons they did not trust farmers that the farmers would hide things in the bags of, of food to make it way more. There would be dirty crops in there. They talk about currency fluctuations that the farmers don't understand. And then to have the farmers up at the other end of the room saying all of the reasons that they didn't trust the traders, that the traders have played with the weighing scales, that they lie about the price. We train them how to use the key functions of a smartphone, the camera, WhatsApp, Google Maps and mobile money. And then we put the traders in the classroom in the middle of the training complex, which is about the size of four or five football pitches. And that was to simulate the traders sitting in the marketplace in a market town. And then the farmers were hiding behind trees and sheds across the rest of the training facility outside. And then they rafts of their produce to the traders in the WhatsApp group that we'd created. Then afterwards, if the trader was interested, they'd say, yeah, how much are you selling from? And once a, a price was negotiated in the WhatsApp chat, then the farmer would share their location, the Google pin, and the trader, just like Uber or Airbnb works, would send the money to my phone as the World Food Program, and we were the escrow and we held the money until afterwards the trader used the Google pin to find the farmer, exchange the produce, check it and only when the trader was happy with quality and quantity that it was as described in the photo, then we would release the money to the farmer. And then you've got a sale. By the start of the summer of 2017 when the harvest was coming in, we were ready and in that harvest season we helped. More than 1,200 farmers sell $50,000 worth of their crops through the system. It's eBay for farmers, but adapted to the very specific needs of rural small-scale farmers and the traders who want to buy from them. And those needs are that they are at the end of the line, their last mile.
5: So now for my other Zambian farmer friend. Golden Lewindi is a 46-year-old farmer who lives about 70 kilometers away from Manor. He runs an agricultural goods shop in his village. He's actually part of a successful cooperative, which has a seed bank for poor farmers. And he's got plenty to keep him busy.
3: My name is Gordon Luindi. I'm uh, forty-six years old. I'm married. I've got six children, three girls and three boys.
5: Oh, my goodness. You have your hands full. Yes. Tell me how many generations has your family been working your land?
3: About four generations.
5: What was the process like when Evan and the World Food Programme first brought Mono to you? What, what happened?
3: The World Food Programme used to come to our press. Then we could put the crops together, a sort of aggregation. Then the World Food Programme would come and get the crops. Then maybe after two weeks to one month, that's when we can get our money.
5: And tell me how that changed with mano.
3: When mano came, you know, mano is a platform, the mm-hmm. platform of buyer where the farmers meet with the buyers. So we have more than one buyer, a lot of buyers. So there is that chance of negotiating the price. If you have more buyers, then it means that the price will go up. So this time, for example, if a buyer A is offering me uh, two kwacha per kg of cowpeas, I'm free not to accept that price. Maybe the other buyer is will offer at four kwacha per kg of cowpeas. So it has uh, improved our marketing system.
5: And how much has it increased your income? Would you say it
3: has really increased our income? Before Mano came. We only used it to sell two types of crops. So that is maize and cowpeas. But when Mano came, it attracted a lot of buyers. So those buyers have different requirements. Some maybe would want to buy cowpeas. Others would want to buy soya beans. Others would want to buy maize and so forth. So it has increased our income in the sense that we have the market for every crop that we grow you don't have market for your crops. There is no point of growing made, for example, 100 bags of cowpeas. Where are you going to sell them? Mm. So before the coming of this market, people used only to grow uh, enough for consumption. But after we had market, now people started to grow from 4 bags to about 60 bags. From 60 bags to 100 bags. From 100 bags to 200 bags. So people have got money now than ever before.
5: That is a big deal. So the benefits of this virtual farmer's market include more reliable price information, more potential buyers, lower transport costs, and reliable payment. And as Maynard told me, she sold more produce, which brought her more income.
2: Money increased my income because I'm money to sell more now than before, money. So and Manu now is able to buy, even if I have less than 50 kgs, Manu buys. So man increase more. Maybe I can say 45%. And tell me, what crops do you grow now? I grow maize, cowpeas, soybeans, bambala nuts, ground nuts, sweet potatoes, potatoes, eggplants. Before manu, we were growing only maize and small cowpeas only for feed family.
3: Before this program came, we didn't have markets. So now, if you can come in my community, people are able now to send their children to school. People are living in the iron rusty houses.
5: One part about the story that I totally love is that the WFP gave the farmers smartphones. For most of them, this was their first encounter with such a device. And beyond using mano for themselves, they also sell on behalf of others in their village that don't have smartphones. And of course, they end up using those phones for all kinds of things. Manor used her phone to organize for a bunch of books to be sent to her from abroad, so she could set up an after-school library for kids in her village. And of course, they use phones just like we all do, to communicate with our friends.
3: <laughs> Having a smartphone is a good thing, I tell you. <laughs> I didn't know how good it is. <laughs> you see, like like on WhatsApp, we have got so many groups that we are discussing a lot of farming issues. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you are not on WhatsApp, you can be on Facebook. You are connected nearly to eight. Me and everyone.
5: So, how does Mano help those people who don't have a smartphone?
3: I'm an ambassador for Mano. Mm-hmm. We put the crops together. I get the pictures. I advertise on the platform. Then after that, the buyers will be able to see the crops. So they don't need to travel to come here and see the crops. But we can send the the pictures using the smartphone. <laughs>
5: Maynard and Golden are early adopters, power users, and are now agricultural digital entrepreneurs. They help their neighbors sell cowpeas or eggplants or goats on Mono. And they take a small percentage of the proceeds for their efforts. They're getting paid to help others in their community.
4: But it isn't every single person, every single farmer, that's going to be an e-commerce entrepreneur but it is in in that group for example the the first farmers who were in the pilot in 2017 20% of those farmers sold more produce than the other 80% and in that 20% there were some who were real altruistic enablers of others like minor or golden lewindi who is already a small businessman but and in a, in a cooperative in his village but who had a community seed bank that worked in the cooperative in his village that helped the most vulnerable people in his community come borrow seed grow a bit of produce bring it back you know they were on the margins they're, they're very hard to reach with any kind of business entrepreneurial venture but if you can build a reward system into the project as we did with mano virtual farmers market you can help include them. And then it's the minor Chabotas and the Golden Luindis who have the capacity and are in these really rural areas that can help reach the really vulnerable people.
5: So Claudia, the big idea here is as old as civilization itself. By connecting to a larger world, these farmers get the most for their skills and output. This is only the second harvest with the market created by Mono, but the changes are clear. So, Eddie, this isn't just about food to eliminate
6: hunger. This is about the power of food to eliminate poverty
5: and spur growth and development. That is it in a nutshell. And in Zambia, I think it would be a Bambara nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so when we come back, we will hear about another
6: program that offers food to encourage students to stay in school. And if you are a loyal listener that we know you are to the Global Goals Cast, you know how important it is to stay in school. Irse de Pinta, go out of school is a bad story. I am not not sure that I want to hear your stories as a student, Edie. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I was a very good student and I never mm-hmm. skipped school, but I, I, uh-huh. I've heard stories about you, actually. We'll be back in a second. So from Zambia to Maine, our sponsor, Undeniably Dairy, put me in touch with a very remarkable dairy farmer. Here's my conversation with Jenny Tilton Flood, mother, farmer, activist, and community leader. So, Jenny, the population of farmers, those who are involved in agriculture that feed the world, is actually a very small percentage. Some statistics say in the United States, it's less than 2% feeding everyone else. Tell me what it's like being a dairy farmer. It used
9: to be we lived in a world where everybody either knew a farmer or they had a really deep connection with where their food came from and from whom. In my state of Maine here in the U.S., it's less than half percent of the population really spends their time putting food on the tables of our neighbors. Our cows eat very well. Some of them eat around 130 pounds of food a day. And it's not just anything we throw at them. We don't just see what's cheap on the grocery store shelves. We make sure that nutritionists evaluate how they're doing, how they're feeling, how they look, and make sure we're giving them all the nutrition they need. And we even have new recipes that they'll give us to feed them. And we utilize a lot of the food that we raise here on our own farm for them.
5: So, on the Global Goals Cast, we are unapologetically pro female, pro girl, pro woman. And I'm delighted to be speaking to a female dairy farmer. So, tell me what your perspective on women in agriculture is. Personally, how do you find it? My dad was the John Deere
9: salesperson. And so I was always in the truck riding around a farm. So, I've always been around the women of agriculture. And it's always been such a given for me that women are the people who are driving the checkbook and driving the home and the tractors. They're not just raising crops, they are raising our future. And they're doing so by putting food on the table, putting money in the bank, and infusing their communities at large with the ability to grow, prosper, and better themselves. Whether you're talking about the fact that Dairy Farm is actually taking their manure and turning it into renewable energy sources and actually powering the homes and communities, or you're talking about the fact that not only did they provide electricity for the lights at the local ball field, they probably sponsored the t-shirts that those kids are wearing in their community ball team. We're also a certified B Corp, and that means that we're committed to social and environmental excellence and we're really working to benefit in a meaningful way, not just our business, but the societies that we touch and the communities we're involved with and the environment that we live and work in and depend upon.
6: Welcome back. Later in the show, we're going to hear from another remarkable woman who also works in dairy. Okay, Edie, we know from our work here at the Global Goalscast that education is perhaps the most powerful force for long-term
5: change. We've been banging on it, I think, in almost every single episode. Yeah. And of course, in the short term, that means keeping kids in school today, mm-hmm. which is how I got talking with another World Food Programme officer in Kenya about how food can help to do that.
10: My name is Lara Fossi. I'm the Deputy Country Director for the World Food Programme in Kenya. A lot of my work has been focused around the school meals program, which is one of our flagship programs. In 2009, the Kenya Homegrown School Meals Programme was launched. Local farmers basically produce food that is then purchased for use in school meals, which maximises the benefits for students, farmers and the community. It also encourages dietary diversity and healthy eating habits. School Meals aims to provide children with a meal in schools so they don't have to learn on an empty stomach The meals promote enrolment, and they also help children stay in school so that they can complete their education. By procuring locally from farmers from the surrounding communities, school meals are also acting as a stimulus to the local economy. And we actually started a local economy-wide impact evaluation study earlier this year that is going to try and capture the full impacts that a program like school feeding can have on the local economy. We do know from cost-benefit analyses that have been conducted in a sample of countries that every single dollar invested in school meals has an economic return of between 3 to 10 US dollars And this is from improved education and health among school children that eventually leads to increased productivity when they become working adults.
5: Laura Fossey describes the power of these school meals
10: in an arid part of Kenya. In northern Kenya, enrollment can be as low as 50% in primary school. Many children simply don't access a school education and many children in those communities don't have a guaranteed meal every day during the lean season when people's livelihoods are under stress. In rural Kenya when communities and families see the smoke rising from the fires that are being stoked in the morning from the schools, it is a real incentive for families to send their children to school. That smoke is like a signal that there is a meal that will be prepared during that school day in july this year wfp completed its handover of the school meals program to the government so this is now a program that covers over 1.6 million children and it's fully nationally led financed and implemented so run now by kenyans for kenyans
6: so the world food program in 2017 implemented programs, school meal programs across 71 countries that provided more or less
5: 18
6: million children in 60 countries some meals.
5: That is a lot. Another World Food Program official in Mali summed up why feeding kids in school is so powerful.
11: I'm Silvia Caruso. Caruso, like the opera singer. I'm Italian uh, from the south of Italy, from Naples, and I'm in posted here in Mali, in Bamako, since July 2016 as the World Food Programme representative. I talk about the importance of human capital. What does it mean? We we try to support children because children are, of course, the future of those communities. We uh, provide either food or cash to the committees in the schools for assuring one meal a day for children in primary schools. And it's an implicit transfer to the families, means the families don't have to feed those children, but it's also helped the children to stay at school, focus better on their uh, learning and make sure they attend the school throughout the years.
6: It is very, very powerful stories about food as a crucial tool for achieving the global goals. We may sound like food groupies, right? Like totally on WFP's camp but the truth is that we're really impressed with the results that
5: organizations like the World Food Programme get. I mean, it's massive. This is a really remarkable episode for me to work on. In fact, as you know... (laughs) This episode was supposed to be about something completely different. We were supposed to talk about famine, about the the hungriest people in the world. And then the story from Maynard, from Golden, listening to charity, just slightly took this episode over. So I'm afraid we are gonna have to make another
6: episode. So are we committing on air that we're gonna have a second episode on famine and all the other areas of food? I mean, I get I'm I mean, I mean, it's a, such a complex and rich issue with
5: so many layers. Let's do it. Exactly. So I think we should return to famine, improving harvest yield with better technology, all those issues in another episode.
6: So one issue that really jumped out of me in this episode, Edie, is the power of technology to help people who really need the help. It is the same technology that you would
5: use to get a cab by Uber or get a date in Tinder, but used actually for good. Here is more on just that point from Evan Joyce, one of the inventors of that remarkable app who worked for the WFP in Zambia.
4: Over the last few years, the last decade, we'll say, every single sector of rich world economies has been transformed by digital technologies, financial technologies as well, that are essentially, they're enabling people to do old things in new ways with greater efficiency. There's a similar revolution of, digital and financial technologies, it's about to take place in African agriculture. It's already started in some places. And that it will occur, it's not in question. It's as sure as night follows day, it'll be the same as the way e-commerce is, has shaken the retail industry, how Airbnb has shook the hotel industry, how Uber has, has challenged the taxi industry. The same thing will happen in Af- African agriculture. What we need to ask is how quickly it'll happen and who it'll benefit most. Because if the world is to achieve this zero hunger goal by 2030, then the answer to these questions has to be that it's going to happen as soon as possible, and it's going to benefit those furthest behind first.
6: Equity and equality, food and nutrition, are essential to provide a fair chance to everyone. Without that there will be consequences that will be very, very expensive. Healthcare is increasingly um, heavy when you don't act on prevention, when you don't act on making sure that that seven billion people growing to nine will have access to food one way or the other as a right. Then you will have to pay for the consequences on healthcare and diseases, and it will have an economic and a social consequence and a price for the world. So it is important to look at nutrition. Food is an essential right for everyone because we are all human and
5: we need to be nourished. And that's what we heard in this episode. Maynard, with her increased income, starts eating better, starts providing more varied food to her kids, and she stops worrying about being hungry. And that frees her to focus on other ways she can improve her community. So, Edie, this is the end of our first season of the Global Goalscast. We are going to return in 2019 with Season 2. And we've already oh, yeah. got plans to bring you stories about climate change, diversity, and inclusion. As we just told you, we just committed to fighting famine in some of the most troubled places on Earth. We do want to thank everyone in our network, all the U.N. agencies
6: and the NGOs who have connected us to every corner of the world. We've been in every continent, in more than a dozen countries, in order to find the stories that make this podcast. I have learned an enormous amount this year. Oh, my God, we (laughs) do.
5: Remember Brenda from our first episode, Claudia? Mm -hmm. She crossed the Rio Grande. I'm not going to say the Rio Grande River. She crossed the Rio Grande and became a Google software engineer. The swans who walked to the South Pole relying solely on renewable energy. 60 days, 600 miles <laughs> only on renewable energy. I really wish I had so many pennies every for every time that I heard you say that. Uh, The Palau Pledge people who did that
12: incredible
5: program. Now, when you enter Palau, the country, you get a stamp in your passport that says you will leave that country better than you found it. They won an award just after we made that podcast about them. Right. And just like the Palau Pledge, we will make the
6: Global Cast Pledge. We'll commit to having a season two where we will bring you more stories, more people, more voices of the champions that are making a difference, allowing you to know that you can do your part as well and that we together can make the difference.
5: And before we go, let's hear some more from our sponsor, Undeniably Dairy. This time, I spoke with Emily Hunt Turner, a former attorney who runs a restaurant in Minneapolis called All Square, selling something that I actually can't even say without my mouth watering grilled cheese sandwiches. But there's something very special about this particular restaurant.
12: All Square is a civil rights social enterprise in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are centered on a craft grilled cheese restaurant and professional development institute and we invest in the minds and lives of those who have been impacted by the criminal justice system. Our name and our brand is sort of a double entendre you know our grilled cheese are square and we're also making a positive statement I think to the world that once those who have paid their debts to society are all square as well. Grilled cheese has had this really equalizing warm factor in our enterprise Cheese is a, a bit of an adhesive, and I think that that's something that we really like. Is let's talk about the issue. Let's let's do something on the ground to provide a solution to it. But let's also, you know, invite people in to break bread and share a little warmth. So tell me about
5: some of the folks that you work with.
12: We have twelve fellows traveling through our twelve-month curriculum. I think we have an incredible range of humans with all varieties of backgrounds, expertise. Some have college degrees, some don't. Some have been out of prison for two months, some have been out for years. And the grilled cheese restaurant is a way to, to put money in their pockets, but investing in their professional endeavors as well through the Institute and getting to know who they are and what they want to do with their lives. We have two fellows who are studying for the LSAT to get into law school, one who's applying for a paralegal associates, And the rest of them are developing small business plans. The people that are involved in this are really what's making it the most rewarding for me and I think all of our leadership. What's the
5: most surprising part of your
12: work? The issue that we're dealing with, the the reality is once you have even an arrest that never resulted in a conviction, let alone a conviction on your record, the dreams are really foreclosed. The intention and the hope goes directly to once I get out of prison or once I've I've had my record resolved, how can I survive? How can I find a place to live and find a job? And will that even be possible? I don't know that it will. And dreams are not really on the table. And that is incredibly disheartening in my mind. And it's also not okay.
5: So I want to bring it back finally to grilled cheese. How did you decide on grilled cheese?
12: With this diversity of perspective, with this diversity of, of viewpoint, and a lot of the polarizing rhetoric that we are seeing in the world today, grilled cheese just had a really unifying dimension to it that felt warm, it felt safe, and it felt like community.
5: This was the first series of the Global Goals cast, and I'm Edie Lush. and I'm Claudia Romoeroman,
6: thank you so much for having been with us this year. See you next year.
7: Thank you to our partners at the United Nations, UNICEF, World Food Program, UN Foundation, SDG Action Campaign of the Office of the UN Development Program, International Office for Migration, International Development Law Organization, Malaria No More, Rollback Malaria, Project Everyone, and Public Foundation. We are also grateful for the support of Hub Culture, SAS, Cultural Intelligence, Freud's Communication, Saatchi and Saatchi, Action Button, and of course, CBS News Digital. And to Harmon, the official sound of Global Goalscast. We want to recognize individual champions who have been supporting Global Goals Cast, including David Sable, David Jones, Will Lewis, and Seven Hills. And then to our amazing advisory board Jacob Weisberg, Steve Rubel, Kate Stanners, Dolly Schoenfelder, Matthew Freud, Chrissy Tanner, Fawn Materos Chatanananyang, Sergio Fernandez de Cordova, Dinesh Piliwal, and Scarlett Curtis. This episode would not have been possible without Keith Reynolds, founder and president of Spoke Media, who lent us his ear.
0: Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our start up and running. (laughs) Go to Shopify.com slash Sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash Sonoro.
1: Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts.
10: Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com.